Hey, good morning, church. Welcome to New Valley. We are so, so glad that you have joined us. Whether you're brand new to church or whether you're a part of the New Valley family, we're just very, very glad that you're here. Um, it's hard to believe, because we've been in the Gospel of Mark for the better part of a year, uh, that we're coming towards the end. And as we do, there are so many ways in which these stories in the end of the Gospel of Mark are familiar to us. Even if you didn't grow up in church necessarily, some of these stories just feel very, very familiar. But there are these big themes that keep coming through. One of them is the theme of faithfulness. I believe we are all longing for faithfulness in our lives. And there's a sense in which our hearts are crying out and saying, Will I be able to find a faithful friend, a faithful family member, uh, even as we look to romance and, and lovers? Can I find someone in this life that will be faithful? I think I brought a lot of that emotion into my marriage when Becky and I were first married. I was a child of divorce, and I think there was a sense in which I was crying out, is there anyone that I can ultimately trust to be faithful? I am extremely blessed to have an unusually faithful and trustworthy wife. But faithfulness in this life doesn't come easy, and we know that. And towards the end of the Gospel of Mark, one of the themes that we're seeing is the faithfulness of the Son of God and yet the unfaithfulness of Jesus' friends, his followers. And we're going to look at three things together this morning. The first is this, the sword. The second is the betrayal. And the third is the trial. First, the sword. As Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, we mentioned a few weeks ago that he fell on his knees and he cried out, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. And in this time of prayer, though, in spite of that anguish and anxiety and sorrow, he also cries out at the end of that prayer, but not my will be done, but your will be done, he says to the Father. And then he rises from that time and he says, behold, my betrayer is at hand. And Mark shows us the irony that Judas, his betrayer, comes with armed guards they have clubs, they have swords, they have come to arrest Jesus, this man of peace. There's no need to be armed in such a way, and yet that is how they come. Now, Judas has created a signal that he would kiss Jesus on the cheek, signifying that this is Jesus, and then they would arrest him. And it says in Mark 14, verses 46 through 50, and they laid hands on him and seized him, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And then he says, And they all left him and fled. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he declared that the kingdom of God was present with his uh, physical presence being there. We've mentioned this throughout our series, that where King Jesus was, we see the manifestations of the kingdom of God breaking out 
in so many different ways. The miracles are an example of that. As Christ is performing miracles, what he's saying is everything that's broken and wrong in the world, I am putting back to rights. Everything that's wrong is made right and renewed in my presence. And so the blind can see and the deaf can hear and the mute can speak and the lame can walk. Even the dead are raised from the dead. We see that he deals with evil in such a way that evil flees. And so the kingdom of God is found present in his miracles, ministry of miracles, but it's also made manifest in his teaching ministry. As Christ continually points us to the reality that the entire Old Testament can be summarized by this. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your strength, and with all of your might. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what we see here, sadly, in this passage is two of the disciples not picking up the warfare of the kingdom of God but instead picking up the warfare and the sword of the kingdoms of this world. Of course, Judas does. He's a betrayer. And so he comes with men of war, with swords, with clubs, to arrest Jesus. And, and yet we also see Peter picking up the sword. So, of course, G Judas would do this, the betrayer, but also Peter the disciple, one of Jesus' best friends, instead of leaning into the ethic of the kingdom of God, which Jesus has so clearly taught, he leans into the ethics of the kingdom of this world. He takes up a sword, the Gospel of John tells us, and he cuts off one of the, the uh, soldiers that is there. It cuts off the ear. John tells us his name is Malchus. Now, we sadly are not that much different. Tim Keller writes in his book, King's Cross, Okay. is sideways and it's rubbing on your shirt and I'm hearing that a little bit. Should I just start all over? No, you're fine. Thank you. Malchus, start on Malchus. Y'all thought about Malchus. Come on, Malchus. You ready? Tim Keller writes in his book, The King's Cross, aren't we kind of like Peter? We say we're on the side of justice, of peace, of fairness. But when challenges arise, we feel for the sword hilt. We merge the kingdom of this world, sword on top, then money, power, success, and recognition into our philosophy, whether it's Christianity or something else. We settle for the kiss of death. Everybody does this, whether you're a Christian or not. We have our ideals, we have our, our ethics, the, the code of conduct by which we try to live, but we end up merging more selfish desires into that. And friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, can you admit how often we merge these things, these values, not from the kingdom of God, but the kingdoms of this world into our own values? And we see that very clearly during this crisis. I want to love my neighbor as I love myself but I also need to hoard some toilet paper. <laughs> In a way, this crisis has served like a mirror to us, reflecting back to us where our true heart's faith actually is. Not, 
Not what I say my faith is in, not what I confess my faith to be in, but what my faith is actually in. It's reflecting back to us where our true hope resides, where when the chips are down, will I turn to power? Will I turn to money? Will I turn to the sword? Will I turn to self-protection? Or will I turn to the ethics of the kingdom of God to love my neighbor as much as myself? Where will your help come from? As we go forward throughout this time, where will your help come from? Will it come from the sword of politics? Will it come from the sword of money? Will it come from the sword of protection of self? And that all this money, power, politics, at the end, we're doing this to protect ourselves. And Jesus, though, has a different ethic altogether. He says to build your life around loving God so much that you sacrifice and love him and serve him in such a way that you would also love your neighbor, to seek your neighbor's good as much as you seek your own good, regardless if they share your faith, regardless if that you know them personally, if they're like you, if they're different from you, if they're a different race than you, that we are all image bearers of God called to love one another, not just self-protection, but protection of my neighbor as well. Our hope is in the Lord, friends, who made heaven and earth. And although sometimes this crisis is showing the ugly side of our hearts and self-protecting, may we repent of that and turn to the Lord, return to the values of the kingdom, not of this world, but of the kingdoms of God. The sword. Next we see the betrayal. Mark Notes after Jesus said this, they all left him and fled. So in the garden, as he's being arrested, it says they all left him and fled. And clearly, that's not talking about the, the chief priests and the elders and the soldiers that came to arrest him. They're there to arrest him. The people that left him and fled were his friends, his disciples. They're Christians. What makes betrayal so painful? What makes it so painful is this, that in order to betray you, I have to be someone that loves you, someone you've trusted. Betrayal can't happen with a stranger, and it doesn't come from an enemy. It comes from those that we love. It comes from those that we trust, that we've given our heart to, that have a responsibility to look out for us and to care for us. They they are the ones that can betray us. And that is why it is so painful. Those we expect to love us and to have our best at heart, take advantage of us, lie to us, cheat on us, adultery, lying, deceit, malice, abuse, neglect. These are betrayal. Abuse is betrayal. Maybe your spouse lied to you or has cheated on you. Betrayal. Maybe a friend has stabbed you in the back. Maybe you're like many people who have suffered sexual abuse of some kind throughout your life. Betrayal. Somebody that you trusted in, somebody that you cared for, that should have had your best at mind, took advantage of you. Betrayal. At Christmas time, we talk a lot about Emmanuel that God is with us in Jesus Christ, that in the advent of Jesus Christ coming, 
He is Emmanuel, God with us. And that's not just poetic language. This is one of the most important themes throughout the entire New Testament, that God is with us. And it's so important because it's one of the things that makes Christianity most unique, that God is in the flesh. When we cry out to God in prayer, he not only hears us spiritually, but he can identify with us because he knows what it is to go through what we have gone through. Like you, at times, I can be insensitive to the needs of those around me. I can be callous to things that people are going through. But the more I've lived my life and the more pain and suffering I've endured and observed in those that I love, the more empathy I have towards others as they suffer. When I have suffered, I know what it's like and I care more. I'm able to pray more. I'm able to empathize more because I have endured that same type of thing. And so many of us cry out to God and we blame him. Where are you in suffering and how can you even exist in light of the suffering that I go through and that you go through and that we all endure? But all of our complaints against God, they don't stick in the Christian gospel because in Jesus Christ, God has come and he was not just aloof, but he has endured suffering of all kind. And today I want you to see that he has suffered betrayal. In verses 51 through 52, there's this two verse story about a very strange event where a young man who's following Jesus is just wearing a nightshirt, basically. And perhaps he went out to be with Jesus after knowing that he was going to be arrested and goes to the Garden of Gethsemane just wearing this nightshirt. And when they come to arrest him, someone grabs him by the shirt and this young man flees in such a way that the shirt is torn from him and he's left in utter nakedness and shame and runs away unclothed. He was a friend. He's a follower of Jesus. Now, what's the point of this story? Just two verses. Well, first of all, to me, it points to the historical accuracy of the Gospels. Why would you put that in the text if it didn't actually happen. It's such a strange and kind of interesting thing that takes place. Why would you include it if it didn't actually happen? But ultimately, I think what Mark is trying to say, and many scholars believe that perhaps this was Mark himself. He was the young man who was a follower of Peter's. Ultimately, though, it shows that when Jesus Christ suffered, he suffered alone, and that no one wanted to identify with a suffering Messiah. When Jesus healed, the crowds flocked around him and gathered around him. As Jesus taught, crowds came from everywhere to listen. But when the shepherd was being struck and was being suffered, suffering, the sheep scattered. Jesus was betrayed. Jesus was abandoned and he was denied. And not by his enemies, because enemies can't betray you, but by his friends. All of them betrayed him. All of them fled from him. All of them left him alone. We see the sword, we see the betrayal, and we see the trial. It says in chapter 14, verses 61 through 63, but he remained silent and made no answer. 
But again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. And coming with the clouds of heaven, and the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? If you've read any of the Gospels, and especially the Gospel of Mark, you see that Jesus often avoids answering these very direct questions. He'll often ask another question instead of answering it. But in this instance, he answers directly, Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of the Blessed One? And he says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man. He's talking in third person, but he's talking about himself. And he's referencing the book of Daniel where the Son of Man will return from the throne room of God and he will come to judge the living and the dead. And in this instance, Jesus is saying, I am that man. I am a suffering servant on the one hand, but I will come again as the judge of the living and the dead. And Mark is showing us the irony that the one who will eventually come at the end of the age is the one who is suffering judgment in this moment. But he's being judged and he's the only human being that could stand under any trial and be utterly and completely innocent of all things. On the last day of Jesus' life, Jesus is betrayed by his friends. Of course, we've seen that already. But not only that, but on that last day, his father turned his face away from him. Jesus, the one who had enjoyed the glorious, beautiful visage of God the Father throughout his entire life, the gaze of his loving face on him throughout his entire life, is now experiencing his father turn his face away from him not able to look as the sins of the world are laid upon him. It says in Isaiah 53, 6, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Iniquity means sin. God took our sin, all the sins that we've committed, the sins of the world, and placed them on Jesus Christ on the cross. As I mentioned two weeks ago, the death that Jesus experienced was not simply martyrdom. It was an atoning death. It was a sacrificial death. He died in our place. Having lived the life that you and I should have lived, he then died the death that you and I deserved. And he, God the Father, put our unrighteousness on him in order to cancel the sin debt that we have. In Isaiah 53, 11, it says this, and it answers the question, why did the Father do this? Why would the Father do this to the Son? It says, my servant will make many to be accounted as righteous. God did this in order to acquit us from sin, to remove the barrier, the distance that exists between us and God in order to make a way for us to be right with him. Jesus suffered these things so that we may be made right with God, not on the basis of our faithfulness, clearly, because even his own followers were not faithful, and neither are we. We are made right with God, not on the basis of our own faithfulness, but on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, who was faithful to God and to us to the very end. He makes us clean. 
He makes us forgiven. He makes us the beloved. He makes us sons and daughters. Friends, some of you have spent your whole life crying out in your heart, is there anyone that I can trust? Is there a spouse that I can trust? Is there a brother or sister that I can trust? Is there a friend that will stick so close that I can trust, that will never betray me, that will never leave me, never lie to me, never deceive me, never stab me in the back? Does anyone like that exist? And many of us take that emotion that I described in the beginning of the sermon into our marriages, into our friendships, even into our parenting. Will somebody be faithful to me? And I have amazing news to you. There is one. Your job may fail you and leave you, but Jesus Christ will never. This economy may reject you. Your body may betray you of health. The whole world may come against you. Your best friend may turn his back on you and stab you in the back, but Jesus will never abandon you. Jesus will never, ever betray you. Friends, what hope this gives us, and what transformational power that can bring to our life. One of the benefits of being married to Becky over the years is this. I, I was a child of divorce, and, and being raised in that, and going through that as a young child, and, and seeing what divorce can do to a family and experience that, it makes you wonder, is there anyone out there that I can trust? And to be married to someone in such a way that there's trustworthiness, and there's, there's, there's truth, and, and so forth, well, that builds confidence over time. And that begins to shape you and change you into being a different person. And it's one thing to experience with, with a, a, a sinful spouse, and my wife's amazing, but no one's perfect. But the love of Jesus Christ is so powerful and transformative. Look what it can do. Peter was actually changed. The man who denies Christ, the man who takes up a sword and chops off an ear, is the one who dies for his faith later suffers a, a violent death at the, behands of, at the hands of other people later for his faith. Peter becomes uh, worthy of the name Peter, which means rock, Petros. Why? Because the transforming, trustworthy, faithful love of Jesus Christ after the resurrection so transformed him and empowered him that he was able to live into that name. It can be true of you too. The love of God the trustworthy, faithful love of God can change your life and can make you a new person. Let's pray. Father, though friend may betray us, though family may do so, may, though people we have loved and entrusted may abuse us or wrong us or harm us, oh Lord, we have found in you someone so faithful, so loving, so truthful, so powerful, and I pray that our hard hearts would learn to trust you more and more as we reflect on the goodness of the gospel. May we learn to truly trust and hope in you. May this be made true in our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. He squeaked off. Uh, it's helpful, but if you've got to type it out, don't do it. Abandon and betrayed. I got it, right?
And now let's receive this benediction together. If you're at home, would you stand with me and receive it? God shall supply. Of course, they're at home. Otherwise, they wouldn't be watching. So, And now please receive this benediction and stand with me if you would. God shall... Sh- sh- <laughs> The very last thing. And now, please stand with me and receive this benediction. The word benediction means blessing. This is from God's word, and it's a blessing over your life today because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. This is true. God shall supply all you need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God the Father be glory forever and ever. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May that be true. And the people said, Amen. Go in that grace and that power. They're gone. They left and fled right there. How do you feel? Good.